Section 16 of The Quintessence of Ibsenism. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Asterix. The Quintessence of Ibsenism by George Bernard Shaw. Section 16. The Moral of the Plays. In following this sketch of the plays written by Ibsen to illustrate his thesis that the real slavery of today is slavery to ideals of virtue, it may be that readers who have conned Ibsen through idealist spectacles have wondered that I could so pervert the utterances of a great poet. Indeed, I know already that many of those who are most fascinated by the poetry of the plays will plead for any explanation of them rather than that given by Ibsen himself in the plainest terms through the mouths of Mrs. Alving, Relling, and the rest. No great writer uses his skill to conceal his meaning. There is a tale by a famous Scotch storyteller which would have suited Ibsen exactly if he had hit on it first. Jeanie Deans, sacrificing her sister's life on the scaffold to her own ideal of duty, is far more horrible than the sacrifice in Rosmersholm and the deus ex machina expedient by which Scott makes the end of his story agreeable is no solution of the moral problem raised, but only a puerile evasion of it. He undoubtedly believed that it was right that Effie should hang for the sake of Jeanie's ideals. Footnote. The common-sense solution of the moral problem has often been delivered by acclamation in the theatre. Some sixteen or seventeen years ago I witnessed a performance of a melodrama founded on this story. After the painful trial scene in which Jeanie Deans condemns her sister to death, by refusing to swear to a perfectly innocent fiction, came a scene in the prison. If it had been me, said the jailer, I would have sworn a hole through an iron pot. The roar of applause which burst from the pit and gallery was thoroughly Ibsenite in sentiment. The speech, by the way, was a gag of the actors, and is not to be found in the acting edition of the play. End of footnote. Consequently, if I were to pretend that Scott wrote The Heart of Midlothian to show that people were led to do as mischievous, as unnatural, as murderous things by their religious and moral ideals, as by their envy and ambition, it would be easy to confute me from the pages of the book itself. But Ibsen has made his meaning no less plain than Scott's. If anyone attempts to maintain that ghosts is a polemic in favour of indissoluble monogamic marriage, or that the wild duck was written to inculcate that truth should be told for its own sake, they must burn the text of the plays if their contention is to stand. The reason that Scott's story is tolerated by those who shrink from ghosts is not that it is less terrible, but that Scott's views are familiar to all well-brought-up ladies and gentlemen, whereas Ibsen's are, for the moment, so strange as to be almost unthinkable. 
he is so great a poet that the idealist finds himself in the dilemma of being unable to conceive that such a genius should have an ignoble meaning and yet equally unable to conceive his real meaning as otherwise than ignoble consequently he misses the meaning altogether in spite of ibsen's explicit and circumstantial insistence on it and proceeds to interpolate a meaning which conforms to his own idea of nobility ibsen's deep sympathy with his idealist figures seems to countenance this method of making confusion since it is on the weaknesses of the higher types of character that idealism seizes his examples of vanity selfishness folly and failure are not vulgar villains but men who in an ordinary novel or melodrama would be heroes his most tragic point is reached in the destinies of brand and rosmer who drive those whom they love to death in its most wanton and cruel form the ordinary philistine commits no such atrocities he marries the woman he likes and lives more or less happily ever after but that is not because he is greater than brand or rosmer but because he is less the idealist is a more dangerous animal than the philistine just as a man is a more dangerous animal than a sheep though brand virtually murdered his wife i can understand many a woman comfortably married to an amiable philistine reading the play and envying the victim her husband for when brand's wife having made the sacrifice he has exacted tells him that he was right that she is happy now that she sees god face to face but reminds him that whoso sees jehovah dies he instinctively clasps his hands over her eyes and that action raises him at once far above the criticism that sneers at idealism from beneath instead of surveying it from the clear ether above which can only be reached through its mists if in my account of the plays i have myself suggested false judgments by describing the errors of the idealists in the terms of the life they had risen above rather than in that of the life they fell short of i can only plead with but a moderate disrespect to a large section of my readers that if i had done otherwise i should have failed wholly to make the matter understood indeed the terms of the realist morality have not yet appeared in our living language and i have already in this very distinction between idealism and realism been forced to insist on a sense of these terms which had not ibsen forced my hand i should perhaps have conveyed otherwise so strongly does it conflict in many of its applications with the vernacular use of the words this however was a trifle compared to the difficulty which arose when personal characters had to be described from our inveterate habit of labelling men with the names of their moral qualities without the slightest reference to the underlying will which sets these qualities in action at a recent anniversary celebration of the paris commune of eighteen seventy one i was struck by the fact that no speaker could find a eulogy for the federals which would not have been equally appropriate to the peasants of la vendee who fought for their tyrants against the french revolutionists 
or to the Irishmen and Highlanders who fought for the Stuarts at the Boyne or Culloden. Nor could the celebrators find any other adjectives for their favourite leaders of the Commune than those which had recently been liberally applied by all the journals to an African explorer, whose achievements were just then held in the liveliest abhorrence by the whole meeting. The statements that the slain members of the Commune were heroes who died for a noble ideal would have left a stranger quite as much in the dark about them as the counter-statements once common enough in middle-class newspapers that they were incendiaries and assassins our obituary notices are examples of the same ambiguity of all the public men lately deceased none have been made more interesting by strongly marked personal characteristics than the late charles bradlaugh he was not in the least like any other notable member of the house of commons yet when the obituary notices appeared with the usual string of qualities eloquence determination integrity strong common sense and so on it would have been possible by merely expunging all names and other external details from these notices to leave the reader entirely unable to say whether the subject of them was mr gladstone mr morley mr stead or any one else no more like mr bradlaugh than garibaldi or the late Cardinal Newman, whose obituary certificates of morality might nevertheless have been reprinted almost verbatim for the occasion, without any gross incongruity. Bradlaugh had been the subject of many sorts of newspaper notice in his time. Ten years ago, when the middle classes supposed him to be a revolutionist, the string of qualities which the press hung upon him were all evil ones great stress being laid on the fact that as he was an atheist it would be an insult to god to admit him to parliament when it became apparent that he was a conservative force in politics he without any recantation of his atheism at once had the string of evil qualities exchanged for a rosary of good ones but it is hardly necessary to add that neither the old badge nor the new will ever give any inquirer the least clue to the sort of man he actually was. He might have been Oliver Cromwell or Watt Tyler or Jack Cade, Penn or Wilberforce or Wellington, the late Mr. Hamden of Flat Earth Theory Notoriety or Proudhon or the Archbishop of Canterbury, for all the distinction that such labels could give him one way or the other. The worthlessness of these accounts of individuals is recognised in practice every day. Tax a stranger before a crowd with being a thief, a coward and a liar, and the crowd will suspend its judgment until you answer the question, What's he done? Attempt to make a collection for him on the ground that he is an upright, fearless, high-principled hero, and the same question must be answered before a penny goes into the hat. The reader must, therefore, discount those partialities which I have permitted myself to express in telling the stories of the plays. They are as much beside the mark as any other example of the sort of criticism which seeks to create an impression favourable or otherwise, to Ibsen, by simply pasting his characters all over with good or bad conduct marks. 
If any person cares to describe Hedda Gabler as a modern Lucretia, who preferred death to dishonour, and Thea Elfstedt as an abandoned, perjured strumpet, who deserted the man she had sworn before her God to love, honour, and obey until her death, the play contains conclusive evidence establishing both points. If the critic goes on to argue that, as Ibsen manifestly means to recommend Thea's conduct above Hedda's by making the end happier for her, the moral of the play is a vicious one. That, again, cannot be gainsaid. If, on the other hand, ghosts be defended, as the dramatic critic of Piccadilly lately did defend it, because it throws into divine relief the beautiful figure of the simple and pious Pastamandas, the fatal compliment cannot be parried. When you have called Mrs. Alving an emancipated woman, or an unprincipled one, Alving a debauchee or a victim of society, Nora a fearless and noble-hearted woman, or a shocking little liar and an unnatural mother, Helmer a selfish hound or a model husband and father, according to your bias, you have said something which is at once true and false, and in either case perfectly idle. The statement that Ibsen's plays have an immoral tendency is, in the sense in which it is used, quite true. Immorality does not necessarily imply mischievous conduct. It implies conduct, mischievous or not, which does not conform to current ideals. Since Ibsen has devoted himself almost entirely to showing that the spirit or will of man is constantly outgrowing his ideals, and that, therefore, conformity to them is constantly producing results no less tragic than those which follow the violation of ideals, which are still valid, the main effect of his plays is to keep before the public the importance of being always prepared to act immorally, to remind men that they ought to be as careful how they yield to a temptation to tell the truth as to a temptation to hold their tongues, and to urge upon women that the desirability of their preserving their chastity depends just as much on circumstances as the desirability of taking a cab instead of walking. He protests against the ordinary assumption that there are certain supreme ends which justify all means used to attain them, and insists that every end shall be challenged to show that it justifies the means. Our ideals, like the gods of old, are constantly demanding human sacrifices. Let none of them, says Ibsen, be placed above the obligation to prove that they are worth the sacrifices they demand and let every one refuse to sacrifice himself and others from the moment he loses his faith in the reality of the ideal. Of course, it will be said here by incorrigibly slipshod readers that this, so far from being immoral, is the highest morality, and so in a sense it is. But I really shall not waste any further explanation on those who will neither mean one thing or another by a word, nor allow me to do so. In short, then, among those who are not ridden by current ideals, no question as to the morality of Ibsen's plays will ever arise, and among those who are so ridden, his plays will seem immoral, and cannot be defended against the accusation. 
there can be no question as to the effect likely to be produced on an individual by his conversion from the ordinary acceptance of current ideals as safe standards of conduct to the vigilant open-mindedness of ibsen it must at once greatly deepen the sense of moral responsibility before conversion the individual anticipates nothing worse in the way of examination at the judgment bar of his conscience than such questions as have you kept the commandments have you obeyed the law have you attended church regularly paid your rates and taxes to caesar and contributed in reason to charitable institutions it may be hard to do all these things, but it is still harder not to do them, as our ninety-nine moral cowards in the hundred well know. And even a scoundrel can do them all, and yet live a worse life than the smuggler or prostitute who must answer no all through the catechism. Substitute for such a technical examination, one in which the whole point to be settled is, guilty or not guilty one in which there is no more and no less respect for chastity than for incontinence for subordination than for rebellion for legality than for illegality for piety than for blasphemy in short for the standard virtues than for the standard vices and immediately instead of lowering the moral standard by relaxing the tests of worth you raise it by increasing their stringency to a point at which no mere pharisaism or moral cowardice can pass them. Naturally, this does not please the Pharisee. The respectable lady of the strictest Christian principles, who has brought up her children with such relentless regard to their ideal morality that if they have any spirit left in them by the time they arrive at years of independence, they use their liberty to rush deliriously to the devil. This unimpeachable woman has always felt it unjust that the respect she wins should be accompanied by deep-seated detestation, whilst the latest spiritual heiress of Nell Gwynne, whom no respectable person dare bow to in the street, is a popular idol. The reason is, though the virtuous lady does not know it, that Nell Gwynne is a better woman than she and the abolition of the idealist test which brings her out a worse one and its replacement by the realist test which would show the true relation between them would be a most desirable step forward in public morals especially as it would act impartially and set the good side of the pharisee above the bad side of the bohemian as ruthlessly as it would set the good side of the bohemian above the bad side of the pharisee for as long as convention goes counter to reality in these matters people will be led into hedda gabler's error of making an ideal of vice if we maintain the convention that the distinction between catherine of russia and queen victoria between nell gwynne and mrs proudy is the distinction between a bad woman and a good woman we need not be surprised when those who sympathize with catherine and nell conclude that it is better to be a bad woman than a good one and go on recklessly to conceive a prejudice against teetotalism and monogamy and a prepossession in favor of alcoholic excitement and promiscuous amours 
Ibsen himself is kinder to the man who has gone his own way as a rake and a drunkard than to the man who is respectable because he dare not be otherwise. We find that the franker and healthier a boy is, the more certain is he to prefer pirates and highwaymen or Dumas musketeers to pillars of society as his favourite heroes of romance. We have already seen both Ibsenites and anti-Ibsenites who seem to think that the cases of Nora and Mrs. Elfstead are meant to establish a golden rule for women who wish to be emancipated, the said golden rule being simply, run away from your husband. But in Ibsen's view of life, that would come under the same condemnation as the conventional golden rule, cleave to your husband until death do you part. Most people know of a case or two in which it would be wise for a wife to follow the example of Nora or even of Mrs. Elfstead, but they must also know cases in which the results of such a course would be as tragicomic as those of Gregor's Verla's attempt in The Wild Duck to do for the Ekdal household what Lona Hessel did for the Bernick household. What Ibsen insists on is that there is no golden rule, that conduct must justify itself by its effect upon happiness, and not by its conformity to any rule or ideal. And since happiness consists in the fulfilment of the will, which is constantly growing, and cannot be fulfilled today under the conditions which secured its fulfilment yesterday, he claims afresh the old Protestant right of private judgment in questions of conduct, as against all institutions, the so-called Protestant churches themselves included. Here I must leave the matter, merely reminding those who may think that I have forgotten to reduce Ibsenism to a formula for them, that its quintessence is that there is no formula. End of Section 16